0: CHAPTER 43 OF CARPENTER'S GEOGRAPHICAL READER ASIA BY FRANK CARPENTER THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN RECORDING BY BETTY B PERSIA We are in Persia today. We have come south through Baluchistan, a dependency of India, and then moved on westward. We are now traveling along upon camels over a wild desert plateau, cut here and there by great mountains, from the snows of which are fed rivers, which irrigate little valleys and patches of plain. Now and then we pass a salt lake, and again we may travel for miles, where the land is as sandy and stony as the desert of Gobi. This is the general character of Persia. It is a high plateau, nearly level except where the mountains cut through it. It is almost a desert, and were it not for the mountains, whose cold air squeezes the water out of the winds It would be altogether arid and sterile. The country is large. From east to west, it is as long as the distance from New York to Chicago, and from north to south, its width is as long as from Boston to Cleveland. Its area all told is three times that of Germany and equal to about one-sixth of the whole of our union. Persia would make fifteen Ohios or Kentuckys or Virginias, or more than ten states the size of Iowa. Illinois or Wisconsin. Nevertheless, it has only fifteen people to the square mile, or about nine or ten millions in all. The Persians are not unlike the Afghans. They have light brown or yellow faces, straight eyes, and dark hair. Most of the men are bearded and have their heads shaved. They wear great cone-shaped caps or turbans and long gowns, which are tied in at the waist and fall almost to the feet. Under their gowns, they have on very full pantaloons. In the winter, many wear furs. As we move slowly along through the country, we see comparatively few women. These people are Mohammedans, whose women are not supposed to be seen by other men than their husbands. The women live to a large extent in the back rooms of the houses, and when they come out, they are clad from top to toe in a long black or blue gown with a strip of white cloth at the front. This strip is fastened on around the forehead and extends over the gown almost to the ground. In the top of it, just in front of the eyes, is a window of fine lace through which the wearer can see as she walks along the street. Indoors, the women wear divided skirts which reach to their knees and loose-fitting sacks with long sleeves. They always have their own part of the house, for it is a disgrace for them to meet any other men than those of their own families. For this reason, whenever a man is about to enter the home of a friend, he is expected to stop at the gate and shout out some such words as woman away, in order to give the women a chance to fly to their own quarters before he appears. A Persian does not ask after the wife of his friend, and if he should be so impolite as to do so, his host in reply would not refer to his wife by name or as his wife, but as the mother of his children. For instance, if the Persian's name were Smith, and he had a son named John, he would not say, My wife is well, or Mrs. Smith is well, but, I thank you, little Johnny's mother is so-so today. The Persian women have but few rights. The parents arrange all the marriages, and girls are often married at ten, and boys at sixteen or eighteen. There are but few bachelors, and not many old mates. Most of the Persians live in cities or villages. We see their towns as we travel over the country. The villages are in or near the irrigated lands. They are usually square, consisting of dark, narrow streets, lined with houses, each of which stands in a yard surrounded by high walls. The houses are of clay, stones, or sun-dried brick, those of the better classes being coated with mortar or plaster of Paris. The roofs are almost flat. They are made by laying timbers on the mud walls and covering the timbers with brush upon which is put a layer of mud mixed with straw every summer a fresh coat of mud is spread on and as a result many of the roofs are a foot or more thick these houses have but little furniture the floor is the ground well pounded down with matting spread over it and sometimes over the matting beautiful rugs the floors of most homes form the tables and chairs of the family the people sleep there at night using no sheets, and covering themselves with thick quilts. In the daytime the bedding is rolled up and put away in a corner. The cooking is done upon fires out of doors or in fireplaces. The Persians eat with their fingers, and the plates of the poorer classes are sometimes thin cakes of bread. When a man is through with the rest of his food, he may eat up his plate, and during the meal he tears off bits of it, and by bending them in half, uses them as pincers to convey the meat from the soup to his mouth the diet of the common people is largely made up of bread cheese and milk with a little soup or meat in the form of a stew once a day they drink a great deal of tea and some coffee outside each village are threshing floors places where the ground has been pounded and rolled until it is as hard as stone the wheat or barley is brought here from the fields and oxen are driven over it to thresh out the grain Then the farmers take their wooden pitchforks and toss the grain into the air until the chaff has all blown away. The straw is kept for stock feeding. The chief business of the Persians is farming and the rearing of stock. The farms are irrigated by the streams from the mountains, and canals for this purpose have long been in use. The country produces great quantities of wheat, barley, and rice. It has also large mulberry orchards which feed silkworms, and it exports raw silk, silk cocoons, and silk stuffs. Many fine fruits are grown. The first peaches mentioned in history came from Persia, and the country is celebrated for its excellent dates. The sheep are of the fat-tailed variety, many of which we have seen in our travels through Asia. They produce excellent wool, from which are woven beautiful cloths and the finest of rugs. Persia has also donkeys, camels, ponies, and horses as fleet as those of Arabia. Much of the stock belongs to the nomads who dwell in tent villages and move about from place to place to find pasture. The villagers drive their flocks and herds into their yards at night and take them out in the morning. The milk of cows, sheep, and goats is universally used, and they have an odd custom to make the cows let down their milk. They believe a cow will go dry if it knows that its calf has been taken away. And so, after killing the calf, they stuff the hide with straw and place it beside the cow at milking time. But let us take a look at some of the cities of Persia. We shall first visit Tehran, the capital. It is situated in the northern part of the country, some distance south of the Caspian Sea, and not far from a range of magnificent mountains whose peaks during much of the year are covered with snow. Many of them measure over two miles in height, and away off at the east can be seen one which is more than 17,000 feet high. Tehran has some fine houses, but most of the buildings are of sunburnt brick. They are surrounded by walls built close to the edges of narrow streets through which canals run. There are also many mosques with egg-shaped domes faced with tiles of bright blue and a number of large buildings devoted to the officials of the government and the colleges and schools. The city is the largest in Persia. It has about 300,000 people. Other towns of considerable size are Tabriz, Ispahan, Meshed, and Kerman, which range from 60,000 to 200,000 population. Tehran is especially important in that it is the capital and seat of the government. It is here that the Shah has his palaces, and here Parliament meets. Until 1906, Persia was an absolute monarchy, ruled by the Shah, who used the revenues as he pleased. He spent but little towards developing the country, and was often able during his reign to lay aside a vast portion in diamonds and other precious stones. He had the power of life and death, and many of his actions were very oppressive, This continued until the beginning of the present century, when the people began to object, and in 1906 they forced the Shah to grant them a parliament, or national council, which should fix the taxes and control all things of public importance. This parliament was elected, and Persia is now governed by it under the Shah, so that the country may be called a constitutional monarchy. The kingdom is divided into 33 provinces— each of which has several districts. There are governors over the provinces and lieutenant governors over the districts, and in addition every town has its mayor. Besides the people so governed are several hundred thousand nomads who live in tents and move about with their flocks from place to place. They are divided into many tribes, each of which has its chief, who collects the taxes and pays them to the general government we are told that Persia is rapidly improving under the new government. Formerly its only schools were those connected with the mosques, the teachers being the Mohammedan sheiks, and the children were taught little more than to read the Quran and perhaps how to write. Today, the government is establishing new schools which teach the same studies we have, and in some of which the children learn English. A number of newspapers are now being published and many movements have been started to develop the country caravan and wagon roads are being laid out to connect the chief cities and in time will come railroads leaving tehran we take a long caravan trip during which we visit the city of tabriz the chief business center tabriz lies in northeastern persia not very far from mount ararat where it is said noah's ark rested after the flood the town is made up of a vast number of one-story and two-story buildings, with larger buildings here and there, scattered through it. The houses are surrounded by walls built close to the streets, and the streets are so narrow that we are often crowded against the walls to keep out of the way of the donkeys and camels, which, with great loads on their backs, are continually passing through this way and that. We spend some time in the bazaars. They consist of little shops built along both sides of streets, which are so roofed That the sun cannot come in. The shops are much like those of India. Each merchant sits in a little cell walled with goods, and he has goods piled around him. He usually sits cross-legged on the floor, and the customers stand out in the street as they shop. There are no price marks. The man charges as much as he thinks he can get, and the buyer offers as little as he thinks he can make the man take. The result is that it requires a long time to buy anything. Howbeit, many of the articles sold are of considerable value, and some are wonderfully beautiful. This is especially so of the rugs for which the country has been famous for ages. Persian carpets were bought by the ancient Greeks, and during the Middle Ages they were carried to Venice, and from there over the Alps into North Europe. Persian shawls are also greatly admired, and some are worth hundreds of dollars. There are many rugs made in Tabriz. In one factory there, we see a thousand boys weaving them in all sizes and of different designs. The boys are paid about ten cents a day. We visit also many smaller factories and find rug-making going on in most of the villages. The rugs are all made by hand, and a fine one may require months of continuous labor. A considerable part of this product is shipped to America. End of chapter 43